Borealis Entertainment presents Get Lost So You Can Find Your Way Home A podcast and a memoir by M.K. Lott Alright guys, we're on the home stretch with the watch list and we're going to start with a classic that I swore I would never watch in my life and that was The Exorcist and I don't think that this movie needs any more of an introduction because it's the game changer of horror I mean, it's Maybe that or The Omen. But I swore I would never watch it because of its content. I mean, yes, I've seen Possession movies before. The only ones right now that come to mind are The Conjuring movies and The Evil Dead, which, funny enough, is my favorite horror franchise of all time. But I always had this stigma that the movie had a really dark energy around it and took the whole you-are-what-you-eat thing to a new level. Because I genuinely believe that you have to be careful about the media and the content you take in because I think it'll change the way that you perceive certain things or philosophies at the very least. And that can manifest itself in your ability to understand other people or your habits or yeah, even just like your day-to-day actions. So you just got to be mindful of it. You're going to partake in it, but you have to be mindful of it. So I feel like that begs the question, how did I come about watching it? Well, by sheer accident. I was golfing with my buddy Doug and his girlfriend, and because the golf course's cafeteria was closed, I decided to go grab a burger, and when I came back to their place, there was another couple from our friend group there, and they were already a few minutes into the film. Like, I missed the archaeology part. So I figured why not try to watch it around people I trust and feel comfortable with. And it was not what I was expecting. Everyone was either laughing because they caught all the references that were in Scary Movie 2, or on their phones unfazed. And I was still terrified. But I think that suspension of disbelief from everyone else actually helped because I got to focus on it as a film and not a possession story. And it was so profound to me. Because in reality, when you take away the shock value and even the genre of horror, it's really about a mother who's desperate to help her terminally ill daughter, and the only person who can do that doubts that it'll even work. And I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed The Exorcist, and while I wouldn't watch it frequently, or even like every October, I'm glad I did. And... I'm glad that I came at it from a place of studying it rather than freaking out and avoiding it. But just to give myself a little bit of a palate cleanser, the next film I saw that same night actually when I came home was Idiocracy. And I have an interesting appreciation for Mike Judge. I never saw King of the Hill, I never saw Beavis and Butthead, but, and some of you know this from the episode I did, I saw and loved Office Space, and I had heard about this film while I was sitting in a backyard of an Airbnb in New York with a family friend, and he said with the climate of the country, which at the time when we were having this conversation, Trump was in office for the second year, our family friend said that this was a must-watch. And long story short, for those who have never heard of it, Idiocracy is about the military picking the most average man on earth to go forward in time for this like 
experimental hibernation time capsule thing and see what life is like. But the problem is, all the dumb people kept having kids, so as a result, they were just producing and reproducing dumber and dumber kids until finally the guy who is Luke Wilson, uh, Owen Wilson's brother, comes out of hibernation and he goes from being the most average person to the smartest man alive, which is a great concept. And fast forward six years from the conversation I had with a family friend, and I finally got around to watching it. And while I completely get what he was saying about this film, I think, sadly, this resonates in a lot of eras of American society. I mean, this film was made way before Trump for president was on anybody's lips. But I think that shows why stories like Idiocracy are so powerful. Its message is timeless, and you can always find ways to connect it to any situation. In that regard, it's absolutely worth watching. That and Dak Shepard. I think Parenthood was his best work, but this is probably my favorite role for him. That or the uh, douchebag from Employee of the Month. And the next film I saw after that was a little film called Stand and Deliver. There were a lot of movies that were in our DVD library growing up that I thought were extremely interesting to look at the spine of, but I had never had the interest of trying to watch them because they were interesting but not my thing. Maybe like a little too mature? Not inappropriate, but just, you know, it's a grown-up story that I wouldn't get. And these were films like An Officer and a Gentleman, Bloodsport, which I later saw and loved, uh, the Flower Drum Song, The Jacket, The Darjeeling Limited, and Stand and Deliver. So when I saw it on HBO Max, I figured that was a good opportunity to just jump on the story and see what it was about. And I think the best way to describe it is it's a white savior story without the white savior. It's about an engineer who decides to give up his job to become a math teacher at a very struggling high school and he gets the kids to step up and pass the test they need to take to get into college. And they do so well that not only do the higher-ups assume they cheated, but they turn that into the narrative and don't give the kids a chance at all. And usually these films feel formulaic, not saying that this wasn't either, but it just felt more authentic, and the icing on the cake is, Stand and Deliver is based on a true story. In fact, not realizing it, I read about this story in a self-help book years before I saw this film. And I never realized that it was that same story until the credits started rolling and they did that epilogue caption thing that they would do, uh, like back in the 80s. So it would just say stuff like, so-and-so would later on go do this great big thing while the bad guy became homeless and died or some shit like that. But if you're willing to kind of look past the fact that it's shot and set up like an 80s movie, I think this is very much worth watching, especially if you're looking for a good underdog story. And if sports films aren't your thing. So, underdog story, no sports, perfect for you. And the next film I saw after that was The Menu. And The Menu is about as satirical as social satire gets. It is 
very clearly commenting on the snobbishness of higher-end dining and the clientele that they cater to. So I would only recommend this film if you're into stories that have that clear of an agenda, like Brave New World or 1984 or Silent Green, maybe Fahrenheit 451, but that's a little too dystopic. I guess Brave New World is too. But that's not to say I had a bad time with this film. The best part about this film for me was the cast, by a long shot. Ray Fiennes is untouchable, Anna Taylor-Joy is fantastic as this kind of foil against Ray Fiennes. John Leguizamo was fun to watch because I kept thinking about how Luigi from the first Mario Brothers movie and Sid the Sloth from Ice Age was this now big ego hotshot who is actually worth much less than he lets on, and the rest of the cast were really well picked for their roles. Even watching Hong Chao was fun because I got to say, oh shit, that's the nurse from The Whale. I loved her in that. It was a really fun movie that didn't have the attention that I think it deserved. But if it's still on HBO Max by the time this comes out or by the time you hear it, give the movie some love and check it out. If it's your thing, of course. And the next film I watched was Donnie Darko. I joke and I tell people that I'm what happens when Jake Gyllenhaal and Panic! at the Disco's Brendan Urie have a baby. So when I watch younger Jake Gyllenhaal, like in October Sky, or in this case Donnie Darko, it's always weird to watch someone who looks almost exactly like me. Like if I was a little bit taller and I got into the film industry, I would not be surprised if fate made me his stun double. But Donnie Darko, aside from Baby Gyllenhaal, was not what I was expecting. Then again, I didn't really know a lot about this movie, other than he may or may not be crazy because he sees a man dressed like the world's most disturbing bunny. But it's a lot more than that. This is probably the most fun, high-concept film I've seen in a long time. And as a philosophy major in college, it reminded me of the kind of conversations I had to have to get my degree. And while it's been really difficult to explain the value of a philosophy degree to others, this is exactly the kind of stuff that's talked about in those programs, and that kind of reminds me, oh yeah, that's why the degree was worth it. And I love it. I think that kind of thinking and exposure to those ideas helps sprout options that may never have been considered or even thought of at all. I feel like films like that kind of allow things to be entertained without feeling like there's any kind of risk or waste of time involved. It's just fun to think about. But that's when things start rolling and you may start thinking, you know what? There may be something to that idea. I mean, I'm almost positive that's where modern science and quantum physics came from. I mean, hell, before psychology was psychology, it was identified as philosophy of the mind because they were just theories and then somebody actually tried to test out the theories and they became a reality. So, this was such a fun yet weird movie where everything had a connection that just made it fun to pay attention to. So if you're looking for a movie that kind of like tests your brain a little bit, Donnie Darko is the go-to movie out of probably all of the movies that I talked about for September. And I only say that because it's a lot different than Inception, where the concept is really high. Well, I guess it's similar in this way too, but... In Donnie Darko, it didn't feel like anything was a mistake. There's a lot of stuff that didn't make sense when you watch it the first time, 
but you can just kind of get this intuitive feeling that nothing in the film was done by accident. And I love movies like that where you can just feel it. It's so cool. And speaking of intentional filmmaking, the next film I watched after that was The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And this was an interesting one for me because even though I feel like every American knows who he is, this was actually the first John Wayne movie I ever saw. Not Stagecoach, not The Searchers, not True Grit, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Which is interesting because compared to those movies, he has a supporting role in this, right next to Jimmy Stewart. So, I mean, there are definitely worse people to be cast alongside. But when I was watching it, just not the film itself, but kind of the impact of the film in society, it amazes me how much you actually don't know how much Western movies influenced American culture until you watch it. Right? Case in point, there's a character in the movie named Link Appleyard, who I think is the sheriff, but he's kind of like the bumbling idiot, who's played by Andy Devine. That name won't really ring a bell as much as his voice. Because for anybody from my generation or grew up LDS where the only thing you can watch were Disney cartoons, he's the voice of Friar Tuck in the Disney cartoon of Robin Hood. And I'm almost positive he's in another Disney cartoon. I think it's The Rescuers, actually. But he's in something. And I wonder if the way that this Western depicts American honor and justice is still kind of the case now to kind of transition from, you know, recognizing an actor that you may have never recognized before to thematically the impact of Westerns. And, and I mean, I, I won't try to spoil too much, but this film really talks about how there's people who define and build up the civilization and the structure that we have and know today. And then there's the people who take the credit for it. Like in the film, the men who fill those roles are both good men in their own ways, but that really doesn't seem to be the case now where there's just the hard worker and there's the poster boy. Maybe it's just a little more apparent now because I've lived enough of my life to know that this is just the way life works, but it was oddly nice to see something that feels as fictional as a Western have those kinds of themes. It's really eye-opening in the best way possible for how themes and reality can be depicted in something that seems like the exact opposite for some. I mean, this is a black and white movie set in the wild, wild west that's been fantasized over and over again. Now granted, this is not a film I would recommend to everyone. I would probably recommend this to people who really like watching movies with a purpose. Not necessarily an agenda like The Menu or a thought experiment like Donnie Darko. This is more of a film that's got the idea of the director and writer saying, this is how we understand the world to be. And that makes it a really cool watch. Almost like I would only show this movie to people who want to watch a movie and sit down and take it seriously. Like, this is this is the kind of movie where no matter where you watch it, you have to have theater etiquette. That's another good way to put it. 
And the next movie I watched after that, I think it was the same day, as a matter of fact, was Elemental. I saw a lot of buzz about this film, but not in a good way, because I heard that the film didn't do all the box office, and it was already a weird, mediocre film to begin with. For those who don't know, Elemental is a Pixar romantic comedy where everybody is the embody uh, personification, I should say, of an element. And it's about a girl who is a personified flame falling in love with a guy who's personified water. So, opposites attract. That's kind of the name of the game with this one. And after hearing how it performed, I was honestly concerned that this was Pixar becoming a part of the Panderverse, to quote South Park. So, I didn't bother. And then... I was eating some Hawaiian barbecue, and my roommate had said that if I hadn't seen Elemental, that wasn't an option, and she would never accept anything else. So, I thought about it for a second, which was a nice way of saying I just chewed extra long and just added some extra chews into my food. And I responded with, yeah, no, no, of course, of course. Um, but, you know, while we're on the subject, uh, we, we should watch that. And that's how I got to watch it for the first time without telling her what was essentially blasphemy. And this was such a fun movie. Again, I'm a sucker for animation of most, if not any, kind of style. But Pixar's got a special place in my heart. Not just because they're nostalgic. I, I mean, I grew up on their stuff. In fact, I remember when I was a little, little boy, I would take... I think they're called shoe trees. They're like the wooden... Uh, they're, they're like the wooden things that you put into your shoes to keep their shape. I would take my dad's shoe trees because they sounded like Flick's backpack from A Bug's Life, and I would act out A Bug's Life in his closet. Holy shit, that took me back. Um, <laughs> but, again, not just because they're nostalgic, but also because they are probably the most innovative name in the animation game right now. I was shocked to hear how expensive Pixar movies are, especially because there are other films that are extremely well-invested and hyper-realistic and arguably better animated, but they don't have anywhere near the budget that Pixar has. Pixar budgets are like the same as Marvel and superhero budgets. And that's because lately, Pixar has been creating or modifying software specifically for the projects they're working on. Like, Finding Dory was, I think it was like $240 million or something like that. Because they invested and created a software that perfectly mimicked the movement of an octopus. Honest to God. Like, the reason why hair looks so good in animated movies now is because of movies like The Incredibles and Monsters, Inc. Nobody really knew how to animate fur, so they created software that could make Sully look furry. Like, people don't think about that, but that goes a long way. And so, I would imagine they did something similar with Elemental, but with the way that elements would actually move and behave, and the design of everything was fantastic. It definitely gave me a little bit of Inside Out vibes, so if you liked Inside Out, You'll probably like the look of this film as well. 
plus, I mean, you gotta admit, this was a really fun way for Pixar to make a rom-com. And I would highly recommend this film if you're looking for something light and upbeat and just fun. Not to mention they have an original song in here that's been in my head for months, and I don't hate it. Which is saying something. <laughs> and the last film that I'm going to be talking about in this episode, because it's the last film I saw in September, was Batman Returns. I had always started watching Batman Returns, but I never finished it. In fact, I didn't know until I saw it in September that it's a Christmas movie. But it's a Christmas movie in the same way that Die Hard is, just to modify your expectations. This probably had one of my favorite scenes, though, out of any of the movies I saw this month, because it just hit me so powerfully. Specifically, it's the scene where Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle are dancing in the gala, and they find out that they're Batman and Catwoman. And truthfully, this was some of my favorite acting and some of my favorite directing in a Tim Burton movie. Which reminds me, peak Tim Burton is amazing. I don't know if we really need the Charlie and the Chocolate Factories or the Dumbo remakes, but we definitely need the Beetlejuices and the Nightmare Before Christmases, even though he didn't direct that, I'm not going to go into that right now, and the Corpse Brides, and of course, the Batman Returns. It's just a nice little refreshment of somebody putting in their own view of the world and their own take on a character that makes movies fun to watch because we as an audience get to say, this guy has a really unique art style and voice, let's see what that looks like with a character I know and love. Like, imagine watching this and then watching The Dark Knight and then the Lego Batman movie and then The Batman with Robert Pattinson and just see how something so universally recognizable can be interpreted in continuously different ways. It's honestly a really cool way to appreciate a character. In fact, in college, I had to do that with Frankenstein, where we watched every movie and every iteration of the character to see how things were different. And I don't know, I feel like Batman Returns is a really fun addition to just cinema in general. And I think this would be worth watching if you want to see something potentially left field that really leans into that proudly and somebody who really owns their stylistic voice because sadly I don't think we have enough voices like that and we don't permit enough voices like that to be loud enough to be heard so I don't know the more unique the style the more important I think it is to preserve that stuff and Batman Returns is a great example of that Now, thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Get Lost So You Can Find Your Way Home. I hope this episode leaves you better than it found you, and I hope it gives you some good recommendations. If so, all of these films are available on HBO Max, Amazon Prime, or YouTube for free as long as you're okay with ads. You, Then again, you'd also have to make sure that uh, you're able to catch them before they go off the streaming services. But anyways, thank you all for listening. And until next time, here's to finding your way.